Well, we're going to transition in our uh, service now to our teaching time. So if you have a copy of God's Word, the Bible, please open at the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Let me encourage you at the beginning of this new year to make it your custom at church uh, to potentially take notes. Um, Honestly, when I was a teenager, the best way I grew in my faith during the service was not just attending, but by actually writing down what the pastor was saying. Um, I didn't look at them again, but it was that act of, 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 of moving from, from just hearing it to writing it down and recording it that, that just, just helped me to understand God's Word better. So let me encourage you to take notes at the start of the year, especially now as we start a new sermon series. So as you can see behind me, it is going to be called Back to the Beginning. So any time that I preach over the next five months, God willing, We're going to be in Genesis, and specifically be looking at Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Um, So we're going to go from January to about June. I'm going to be away for a little bit in that, but January to June, anytime I'm preaching, we're back in the beginning. We're back in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. But the question is this, why will we take time to go back to the beginning over the next months? Is Is it necessary? Why take time to go back to for some people's opinion, a controversial book? Why are we going to spend the next few months back in the beginning? Simply because our world is totally confused. Not only are people in the world confused, but Christians in the church are also confused. We're confused about gender and marriage, or about work and rest, about sin and the effects of sin. We live in an age of confusion. Back in the 16th century, the Protestant reformers also lived in an age of confusion. You see, people in the 16th century were confused about the nature of salvation because the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church had, had, had clouded their eyes to the teachings of the Bible. So the reformers at that time called people back to the beginning. They cried out, ad fontes, back to the sources, back to the fountainhead. They brought the people to the original languages of the scripture to rediscover the great teaching of salvation. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as proclaimed in scripture alone to the praise and glory of God alone. And just as people in the 16th century found clarity by going back to the beginning, so I believe in the 21st century we will find clarity by going back to the beginning, to the opening chapters of the Bible. Now, the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. It records the beginning of all people, and it records the beginning of a particular people. It also tells us about the beginning of our sin problem and the beginning of God's salvation plan. And in this book of beginnings, we are introduced to core teachings and themes that, that are developed throughout the rest of the Bible. And this is evident in Genesis chapters 1 to 3, where we are introduced to the themes of, of creation, the Godhead, humanity, gender, marriage, work, rest, sin, salvation, um, creation care. Many, many different themes and topics right there in the opening first three chapters of the Bible. As a church then, we are going back to the beginning 
to the book of beginnings to find clarity in an age of confusion. So let's read the beginning, verses 1 to 2 of Genesis chapter 1. And God's word declares, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And we'll finish our reading there. So immediately we are introduced to the sole subject of the opening two chapters of Genesis and the main focus of the entire Bible, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. However, if you open a commentary or any book on these verses, you will immediately be plunged into a world of, of scholarly debate. Paragraphs after paragraphs and page after pages about the grammatical structure of verse 1, the relationship between verses 1 and 2, and of course you will read different theories about the interpretation of the whole chapter. So for this reason, I think it will be helpful for me, uh, before introducing the Creator, to set out how currently I understand the overall structure of Genesis 1. And you may not agree with me, and that's okay, but I take verse 1 to be the title of the creation account. Like a good blog title, it, it summarizes, I believe, the core message of the narrative to follow, that God, out of nothing, created everything. I think verse 2 then describes the earth which the Holy Spirit is moving over in anticipation of making it, 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 it suitable for God's creation. So out of nothing, God created the earth empty and without shape before he formed and filled it with every living thing as described in verses 3 to 31 of chapter 1. And this means, I'm going to say it outright, that I reject the so-called gap theory, which suggests that there is a gap of potentially millions of years between verses 1 and 2. Now, many well-known evangelicals believe that, but I don't see their arguments convincing. According to the gap theory, God created an initial creation described in verse 1, and then he judged it so that it became without form and void as described in verse 2. Advocates of this view appeal to two verses in the prophets for support. However, I don't find these verses convincing, and I prefer to take verse 1, as I've already said, as the summary title of the whole narrative. Verse 2, then, as a description of the earth which God created out of nothing, ready to be formed and filled by the acts of creation from verse 3 onwards. And now, as you can imagine, it's very easy to become lost in all the different theories. Therefore, it is so, it is so important that we keep our eyes on the sole subject of the creation account, God, the maker of the heavens and the earth. Without arguing for his existence, the author of Genesis introduces God in verse 1. He describes him as Elohim, And although the term describes the one God, Elohim, interestingly, is plural in form. Now, some monarchs, such as our late queen in Britain, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, referred to themselves in the plural to express a sense of majesty. 
And in the same way, the creator is introduced here with the, with the majestic plural because he is, he is exalted above all. He is the creator and everything else is his creation. Verses 1 to 2 then provide us with at least four truths about our creator. Four truths which impact our thinking and impact our living in our world of confusion. So if you're taking notes, truth number one. God is the eternal creator. God is the eternal creator. The Bible starts with the phrase in verse 1, in the beginning, God. This is the beginning of time, the beginning of our universe. Before there was anything, there was only God. He was, and he is, and he is to come. As many of you know, I love working with children but it is really scary at times because, because kids just throw you a curveball of a question. You never know what to anticipate. And if you have kids or if you have worked with kids, then you'll know the question, who created God? And the answer is no one. God has always existed because he is life. God is the self-existing one. That's what it means for God to be God. Everything exists today because the creator has always existed. Moses declares in Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And this truth immediately challenges the dualism, the dualistic worldview of, of some religions and even scientific theories which believe that, that matter is, is co-eternal with another force or with God himself. According to Genesis 1, verse 1, God and God alone existed before anything else there was no other force, and there was no pre-existing matter. Modern science agrees with this, doesn't it? And now it rejects the idea, which was once held by scientists, of eternal matter and affirms that there was a beginning. While science suggests the Big Bang started everything, the Bible declares that the eternal God created everything through his powerful word. And this truth, the truth of our eternal God, also comforts those who, who have a personal relationship with the eternal creator through his son, Jesus. For example, when it looks like the world is out of control because of war or worldliness, you can trust that God has allowed it and knows what he is doing through it. Or when your life is is turned upside down by, by sickness, by scandal, or even to say by your own stupidity. You can trust that God knows the end of the situation before it even started because he is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. Friends, Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 to 2 proclaims and introduces us to the eternal creator. It also introduces us, secondly, to God as the only creator. Who's mentioned in verse 1? Elohim. 
Who is the sole subject of the creation account in chapter 1? Elohim. In just 31 verses, Elohim is mentioned 35 times and his direct activity is recorded 32 times. God alone created. God alone said. God alone saw. God alone made. God alone separated. God alone called. And God alone blessed. Without a doubt in the, in the author's mind, in the mind of Genesis chapter 1, God is the only creator. And this is significant because Genesis was written at a time when people believed in many different gods. Archaeologists have found Egyptian and uh, Mesopotamian creation myths, which, which, which credit several gods with the act of creation. For example, um, a creation myth known as the Babylonian Enuma Elish and describes how Marduk and Timat fought with one another before Marduk victoriously triumphs and cuts Timat in half to make the heavens and the earth. Now, we can't be sure how much Moses uh, knew about the ancient myths, but it is clear that the differences outweigh the similarities in order to, as one writer says, underscore the fact that Yahweh is the only true God and the other gods of the ancient Near East are a mere pretense. Against polytheism then, the creation account in Genesis 1 declares that there is no one, absolutely no one, but Elohim. And throughout the Bible, the the biblical authors often praise God because he is the only creator. Psalm 96, verse 5, for example, calls us to sing a new song to the Lord, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Nehemiah 9, verse 6, the Israelites declare, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Everything, everything in our universe has been created by God alone, because God is alone. I wonder how often... Do you praise God for being the only creator? It's a challenging question, isn't it? I'll be the first to admit how I rush through the day feeling to give thanks to God for maybe a beautiful sunrise or for the fact that the world is still spinning yet again. Or when the seasons change to, to thank God for making our world beautiful. He didn't have to make it that way. But he did. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.21 points out that we sin when we fail to thank our creator. And he goes even further and says in verse 23 of Romans 1. That all of us by nature worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And for some of us, it may be like, uh, like, like the Egyptians or those in Babylon who serve physical statues and, and, and they form gods in their minds and in their writings. 
But for many others, um, it may be something or someone that takes the place of the only God in our lives. For example, a career or a hobby. Whatever it is, though, it is a false God because there is no one but Elohim. Friends, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, introduces us to the only creator and calls us to repent because we are sinners who make gods in our image instead of worshiping the only God who created us in his image. So God is the eternal creator. God is the only creator. Thirdly, God is the sovereign creator. Read verse one with me again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The phrase the heavens and the earth is a, is a device that uses two opposites to describe everything in between. The author is saying then that, that God created the entire universe, everything seen and unseen, known and unknown. Everything was created by him. Nothing came about without his command. And we're going to see this next week, how God created everything by his powerful word. He simply spoke and it came into existence. And that verb created in verse 1 translates a really important uh, word in the original, bara. It's a really important word in the Bible because it's only used with God as its subject. Bara is a word reserved by, by the biblical writers to emphasize God's special acts of creation. And although it is used at times to describe uh, creation from, from pre-existing material, so he, he molds and he forms, at other times it does suggest and point to creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, that there was nothing apart from God and then it came into existence. And that truth is confirmed in the New Testament. For example, Paul describes uh, God at the end of Romans chapter 4. And he, he says that, that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. According to the apostle, God out of nothing calls into existence everything. Later on, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So again, we read that, that out of absolutely nothing, God, by his powerful word, created absolutely everything. And because God created everything and everyone, everything and everyone is designed by and accountable to him. It is his right to rule over us. We are the clay. He is the potter. We are the creature. He is the creator. Therefore, God can do as he wants with whatever or whoever he wants, whenever he wants, because he is the sovereign creator. And there are many implications of this truth. But let me mention just two. First, because God is the sovereign creator, we should submit to him and not rebel against him. 
You see, many in our world believe that, that they alone are, are sovereign, that we are the captains of our life, the controllers of our fate. So many people think that they can do whatever they want and act according to however they feel. Does that maybe describe you today? You are the sovereign self. As a result, people question God's design and and rebel against his set boundaries. For example, people question God's good design of, of gender and rebel against the boundaries set for a one-man, one-woman marriage. Themes that we'll return to at the end of Genesis chapter 1. The question comes, though, who are we to decide what gender we should be and who we should sleep with? God alone decides because he created gender and marriage for our good. He is the sovereign creator, so we should willingly submit to his good design and his righteous boundaries while trusting his perfect goodness. Do you remember that by this time last year, we went through a series called Who is God? And in that, we looked at God is sovereign. And in that sermon, you can find it online for those who are interested, we said that that God's sovereignty cannot be separated from any of his other attributes. So yes, God is a ruler, and he is supreme, he is exalted, he is sovereign, but he's also righteous, he's also good, he's also loving, he is also perfect. And we must hold all of these in balance to willingly submit to his good design while trusting his perfect goodness. Secondly, because God is the sovereign creator, we can trust him in times of difficulty. He is the powerful one who can, who can change our situation in a second with a, with a command from his mouth. That's why the psalmist says, I look up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And perhaps the only thing that you need today, struggling saint, whatever it may be, perhaps the only thing that you need today is to, is to look away from your shifting circumstances and look up to your sovereign creator and to say, in the Lord, I take refuge. So God is the eternal creator. God is the only creator. God is the sovereign creator. Fourthly and finally, God is the loving creator. We've noticed the who, the what, the when, and the how of creation. We must now ask the question, why? Why did God create the world? That's an important question to ask because there's a lot of confusion in our world and in the church about the songs and about the reason why God created the world. Philosophers think that God created the world because, because without the world, he wouldn't be God, that he needed the world to, to become God. Musicians, even Christian musicians in their songs, think that God created the world because he couldn't be happy without us. And other religions think that God created the world only because he conquered evil. If he didn't conquer evil and he wouldn't have created the world. The Bible, however, 
declares that that God is totally self-sufficient and doesn't need anything or anyone. So we have the question, why did God create the world? And for that, we need to move a little bit beyond Genesis chapter 1. For example, to Psalm 19, verse 1, which exclaims, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. One writer says that, that, the, that the universe is announcing God's beauty. Friends, God created the world to publicly display his beauty so that his creation can know him, worship him, and enjoy him forever. He created the world not out of a sense of need or, or, or compulsion to, uh, to, to satisfy a longing within him. Rather, God created the world from the overflow of love that existed before the foundation of the world. And we're going to go deep here, but this is so necessary to understand. You see, the Bible reveals that, that the one God has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also reveals that these three persons of the Godhead have eternally existed in a relationship of love. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. There's inter-Trinitarian love. And Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, makes this clear in in John's gospel and high priestly prayer. There he prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because, notice this, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Before anything else was, there was God. What was God doing? He was in a loving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Creation then is, is the loving and free act of the triune God. And all three members of the Godhead were totally involved and perfectly united in the creation of the universe. Verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 talks about the Spirit of God. Now again, if you go into the commentators, there's a big discussion about does this mean spirit or wind? But, but church history and the majority, of commentary, um, the majority of scholars say it's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of whom it said in Job chapter 33, verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In the New Testament, we read about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who calms storms, heals the sick, and raises the dead. And we ask, how can he do all of this? Because, according to Colossians chapter 1, Verses 15 to 16, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him and for him. And we just sit back and we say, wow, And many voices are telling us today why God created the world. However, the only voice we should listen to is the voice of the creator himself. 
He has told us in his word and through his son that he is the loving creator who created the world to to publicly display his beauty so that we can know him, worship him, and enjoy him forever. The Bible, as we've already heard earlier on from Paul in in Romans chapter 1, declares that that everyone has sinned against God, includes me and includes you. We have all sinned by, by failing to honor God as God and by failing to give thanks to him as our creator. And as a result, the Bible declares that we are all born under God's righteous judgment and we, discur- and, and we deserve his punishment because of our sins. But the Bible also tells us another story. It tells us good news that, that, that the loving creator is the loving savior who entered into his creation by taking on flesh and dwelling among us. It's the Christmas story, isn't it? Jesus entered our world to die on the cross for our sins so that all the world may know how much God loves us. And Jesus was then raised from the dead three days later. And now salvation is being proclaimed in his name. And today in this room, on the first Sunday meeting as River of Life, the loving Savior can become your, your loving Savior if you simply repent, turn from your sin, and turn to him through Jesus. It's the free offer of the good news of the Bible. God is the loving creator. God is the loving savior. And he can become your, your loving savior today if you confess that you have sinned against God and believe in the son of God who loved you and gave his life for you. There are many visitors I've already said today If you hear the Lord speaking to you, please come and speak to me afterwards. Not because I'm going to do anything, but so that I can can show you more in God's word and how simple it is to simply trust and obey the Lord Jesus. Make him your loving savior today because he is your loving creator. And this final truth that God is our loving creator. Well, it challenges, doesn't it, the low claims of, of another worldview in our world. That of the, of the climate activist in the world. You see, in all of their speeches, they, they leave God out of their speeches. And even if they believe in God, they think that he isn't presently involved in the world. Climate activists think that we as humans decide the future of our world and say that our actions will, will, will set off an irreversible chain of reactions which will, which will then lead to our destruction. The doctrine of creation, however, teaches that, that the loving creator sustains his creation. To start the world and then leave it to, to, to abandon ship is to be unloving. God is loving, though. So through his providence, he sustains the world that he created. And we see this right in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. There in verse 2, we see the Spirit of God 
moving over an empty land. And those words, without form, describing the earth, and hovering, describing the Spirit's movement, are unique in the Bible, and they're only used together once more in the Bible. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn over there. So I just think this is so interesting and so, so instructive for us today. It's on the board behind us. Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 to 12. Moses tells the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 32 of how God cared for them and how God looked after them in the wilderness. And then he says, Deuteronomy 32, verse 10, how God found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. Same word, without form, howling waste of the wilderness. Genesis 1, verse 2. Moses continues, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters, same word, Genesis 1 verse 2, hovering, flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. You see what Moses is saying? In Deuteronomy 32, like an angel that cares for its chicks, so God cares for his people. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, same words, just as God cares for his people, he cares for his creation. He is the loving creator who presently sustains the world. We don't have time to do it, but read Psalm 65. Read Psalm 104, and you will see how intimate God's present care for his world is. The psalmist doesn't say it rains. Rather, he says God visits the earth and causes water to come forth. He doesn't talk about the cycle of of, um, photosynthesis and for for the grass to grow. He says that, that, that the Lord causes the grass to grow. He doesn't talk about, about food hierarchies and, and, uh, and the fact that the lion is at the top and then there's a man and, and, and it's just war out the war. It says the young lions look to God for their food. It's amazing. Not because they weren't scientific, but because they understood that God sustains everything in our world. Why? Because he is its loving creator. And this doesn't mean that we wreck the world by misuse. It doesn't mean that we protest and, and don't recycle in Germany. No. <laughs> we're going to see this later on in Genesis chapter 1, that we have a responsibility to care for this earth, not because of fear, but because we are God's stewards, his managers of his universe. But this truth does mean that the world will not stop spinning because of our actions. Every day, the world is sustained by our loving creator. So the opening two verses of the Bible, just two verses. I'm longer next week, maybe. (laughs) They introduce us to God. The only eternal, sovereign, and loving creator. And this is only the beginning, though. And that's why our sermon is entitled Introducing the Creator, because there is so much more 
to learn about him. So as we draw to a close, let me take this opportunity on the first Sunday of a new year to encourage you yet again to get to know your creator more by studying his word. And a very, very practical way to do this is to read the Bible from the beginning to the end in a year. You can do this using, <clears throat> using a Bible reading plan, whether you're, you're a skeptic here saying, who is this God he's talking about? Begin reading and allow his word to shape you. Whether you're, 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 you're a suffering saint, just you want to stay away from God now because you don't understand, read the Bible, get to know your God, wrestle with your creator. Or maybe you're a mature Christian, someone who's going on well with the Lord. Read the Bible. Get into the Word. Plenty of good plans on the internet which you can use. But my prayer, and our prayer as a leadership of the church, is that may the Spirit of God help you know the only God through the Son of God as revealed in the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray together before we stand and sing our final song. Father, we want to thank you for your word to us. We thank you that in the beginning you were there. We thank you, Lord, before nothing ever existed, you were there. And we thank you for creating and sustaining our world and for creating us as individual human beings. And Lord, we confess that we set off on a difficult task in Genesis 1 to 3 with much material written about it. But we pray, Lord, that as a church over the next months, as you will, that you would reveal yourself clearly to us through your word. Help us to understand, Lord, that you are the sovereign and loving creator of the heavens and the earth. Help us to understand that you have created us perfectly in your image. Help us to understand, O oh God, the effects of the sin and the fall in our fallen world and to know that you are our savior. Lord, as we've been uh, listening to your word, again, we're faced with the choice to choose life or to choose death based upon our relationship with your son, Jesus. And we pray that by your spirit today, you would cause people to trust uh, you as their loving savior through the Lord Jesus. And as we stand now to sing, we ask, O oh God, that our praise may be acceptable to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.